0: Uh, we'll hear argument this morning in number 93.1151, Federal Election Commission versus NRA Political Victory Fund et al. Mr. Noble.
1: Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, this case presents two issues. First, whether Congress violated the Constitution's requirement of separation of powers, when it appointed the Secretary of the Senate and the Clerk of the House as non-voting ex-officio members of the Federal Election Commission, where all decisions of the Commission are made by six voting members who are appointed by the President and confirmed by the Senate pursuant to Article 2. The, section, the second uh, issue is whether, if the FEC is un- unconstitutional, whether the actions taken prior to the Court's decision should be afforded de facto validity, as was done some 18 years ago in Buckley v. Vallejo. The United States Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit applied a bright-line rule to the separation of powers analysis and effectively said that the mere presence of non-voting ex-officio agents of Congress on an independent agency in the executive branch was a violation of the separation of powers. After doing so, the Court declined to apply the precedent of Buckley v. Vallejo and felt that because uh, this was a defense to an enforcement action, it must uh, give the National Rifle Association some relief and, therefore, reverse the District Court's finding of a violation of the Federal Election Campaign Act. We believe that the uh, Court of Appeals erred on both issues.
2: The Court's applica-
3: also going to address whether you have authority to represent uh, the FEC here?
1: If the Court wishes, I can address that, uh, that uh, issue. Um, the Federal Election Commission was created in the wake of Watergate to be independent of the Department of Justice. The statute itself talks in terms of the Federal Election Commission having independent authority to institute actions and to conduct appeals of cases under Title II. Uh, the Solicitor General's position on this relies on a narrow reading of the word appeal to not include petitions for well, I suppose
3: you could read 28 U.S. Code 518A, giving the Solicitor General authority, as not being inconsistent with the statute of 437-D that you rely on. In other words, the Commission can appeal every place except here, and when coming here, it has to be the Solicitor General. I suppose you could give effect to both those statutes.
1: You could give effect to both those statutes, though I think that would not be giving full effect to the intent of Congress in establishing the Federal Election Commission. First, I would note that 518a also talks about the Solicitor General's authority to appeal and does not specifically mention petitions for writ of certiorari. Uh, and this Court has recognized that that's a Congressional grant of authority and that Congress can uh, limit that authority in specific instances.
4: Here, where you have... I don't think the word suit in that statute helps the attorney, the SG... Uh,
1: as a general proposition, absent some other, uh, other declaration by Congress that litigation authority um, should reside in another agency, yes, I think that does cover it. But in our instance, uh, we have a situation where Congress clearly intended the uh, Federal Election Commission to be independent of the Department of Justice.
4: Well, you're, you're saying that appeals in 518 indicates that it comprehends uh, the of certiorari. I thought that was your argument.
1: Yeah, the, the word appeal generally comprehends rits of certiorari. The word appeal is also used in our statute in Title II authorizing the Commission to conduct... In appeals. 518, it says suits and appeals. Yes. Um, but I, while that's a general grant of the authority to the Solicitor General, we don't believe that it overrides the, congressional, uh, the, the words of the statute and also the congressional intent to afford the Commission its own litigation authority.
5: Well, it doesn't override it, but the point is the mere fact that your statute says uh, appeals is not contradicted by... Or, or, a limited reading of that statute is not contradicted by 518a, which goes out of its way to say not just appeals, but the Attorney General represents the United States in
1: suits and appeals. Yes, Justice Scalia, but again, I think if you look at the um, intent of Congress, the way the statute is constructed, and also the- I'm effect-
5: looking at it, I'm reading 518a, I'm, I'm reading, uh, I'm reading 9010, and, and what do you do about, about 9040, which was enacted at the same time as the statute you're relying upon, which does say the Commission is authorized on behalf of the United States to appeal from and to to petition the Supreme Court for certiorari to review judgments or decrees entered with respect to actions in which it appears pursuant to the authority provided in this section, which is not the present uh, section. There it goes out of its way to say not only appeal, but to petition for certiorari.
1: That, um, that provision was not enacted at the same time as the Federal Election Campaign Act. In fact, that provision came into being in 1971, prior to the Commission uh, even being created. And then what happened in 1974, when the Commission was created, that statute was just modified to substitute the Commission for the Comptroller General. And we don't think that Congress had any intent in doing that. It was not passed at that time. It was not it was, reenacted? It was reenacted, but there was no It
5: was not originally reenacted enacted, just, just reenacted.
1: And it was not it was not in any way substantially redrafted. Uh they just substituted effectively the FEC for the Comptroller General. So in effect what you have is two statutes created at two different times, uh and when they were originally created for two different agencies. And so we think that the, the looking at uh Title twenty six as a prescription on Title II authority um, is, is inappropriate in this situation. Also, though, how
0: the other agencies have the authority to petition here without the SG? I'm, excuse me? I'm, how many other agencies, or how many agencies, perhaps I should say, have the authority to petition here without the SG?
1: Um, I'm aware of, there I, I, I'm not specifically sure. I think there are a couple of other agencies, and there are situations where um, agencies have voluntarily given Uh, uh, or ceded authority to the SG to to uh, petition this court.
0: Do you know what the other agencies are that you think have that authority?
2: I think the International Trade Commission has that authority. Um, Beyond that, I'm I'm not sure. Doesn't the FTC have the same, similar
1: statute to yours? I don't know that it has the same exact language and clearly does not have uh, the same legislative history with regard to the intent of the Federal Election Commission to be independent of the Department of Justice. If I can address for a moment the question of Title 26 – and how the reading that Title 26 gives the uh, uh, FEC authority, while Title 2 does not, would, would result in what we consider a, uh, a conflicting scheme. Because under Title 26 and under Title 2, the Federal Election Commission can bring suits for injunctive relief for violations of the public financing statutes. And under the Solicitor General's position, we would have a situation that if the FEC cited Title 2, the Solicitor General would have authority in the Supreme Court. If the FEC cited Title 26 as its authority, the FEC would have authority in the Supreme Court. And if the the FEC, as is probably most likely, would cite both uh, statutory sections, then you would have conflicting authority in the Supreme Court. And we suggest that that is not the the, the scheme that Congress intended. What runs throughout our statute, the creation of our statute, was the idea that the Federal Election Commission can find itself in litigation, involved with a sitting president uh, or a sitting president's opponent, and that there should be independence uh, from the Department of Justice, from the Attorney General. The
3: statute in Title 26 expressly gives the FEC authority. I suppose that all these statutes could be read so as to say the FEC does not have authority to petition this court in this case today. If we were to say that, uh, do you think that the subsequent permission given by the Solicitor General could possibly cure The jurisdictional problem?
1: Yes. um, Because uh,
3: the consent wasn't given until long after the petition was filed.
1: Yes, the petition was clearly filed within time. There is nothing that we read in 518a that puts a time limit on when the Solicitor General can authorize a petition to be filed. I I think the Solicitor General would be in a better position to speak speak to that issue, but we don't see anything, and nothing's been cited, that would limit the Solicitor General's authority to authorize the petition.
5: So two years can go by, and we really don't know whether the case is here or not until the Attorney General uh, chooses to uh, uh, retroactively uh, uh, give life to the suit? That seems very strange to me.
1: I, I don't think you'd have a situation because the court would rule on the petition, presumably for that point, no. but um, I, I don't think that's the situation. Oh, at
5: least there's that deadline. After we've ruled on the, on the petition uh, and we rule that the agency uh, is not properly represented, the uh, Attorney General at that point cannot uh, uh, give life to the suit, right?
1: Um, I- Anytime
5: up to then, uh, we really don't know until he speaks whether the suit is properly here or not.
1: Um, I, that is that is a possibility. Uh, that is not the situation you have in this case.
3: Well, maybe the clerk should just refuse to accept the filing in the first instance if it comes in here without the Solicitor General's participation. And that ends it.
1: Well, I, that, that would end it. I, I, um, I think one of the problems you have in, have in this case is that for um, approximately 18 years, the Federal Election Commission has uh, – exercised what I think many presumed was its own independent litigating authority, so there was no question in this case uh, earlier on that whether we had the authority, and no previous Solicitor General has ever raised an objection. Uh, so I think everybody just assumed that the Federal Election Commission did, in fact, have the authority.
5: De facto uh, authority doctrine, you might
1: say. Yes. Uh, if I may move on to the uh, first substantive issue in the case. Uh, the Court's application of the Brightline test – is contrary to the functional analysis that this Court has used with regard to separation of powers cases. And that functional analysis requires the Court to look at whether or not there's been aggrandizement of power by one branch or interference with the exercise of power by another branch. In this case, we have a threshold question. Do the ex officios exercise any power? The statute itself provides that the ex officio members of the Commission have no vote on the Commission. All decisions are made by the six voting members of the Commission. So as a th- threshold matter, you have no direct exercise of power. But moving on to see what else the ex-officios can do. Statute provides that they can neither be chair or vice-chair of the commission. And uh, moving beyond that, the commission's rules of procedure provide that they cannot serve for purposes of a quorum, they cannot vote to adjourn, they cannot select a presiding officer. Well, they can
0: certainly sit in on all the discussions of the Commission. Yes. And might not those discussions be less than full and frank in the presence of those two congressional
1: representatives? Whatever influence they would have to um, chill the discussions would be very minimal, considering the fact that this agency, as all agencies, works under the Freedom of Information Act, Sunshine Act, the Federal Advisory Committee Act. So the commissioners do not sit at a meeting with an understanding that what they say will forever be secret. You mean the Freedom of
0: Information Act would authorize the release of the private deliberations of
1: the commission? Not until an enforcement action is over. By statute, within our statute, there is a provision that makes enforcement actions confidential during their pendency. That provision applies to the ex officio members as well as it applies to the commissioners and the staff.
2: But do they keep transcripts of these deliberations that are, that are later made uh, public?
1: Yes, the, uh, the tape, Verbatim transcripts? They are taped. The tapes are then made public and are then released with few exceptions, uh, dealing mainly with settlement discussions, and then publicly released upon request.
5: These members do participate in the discussion, though, and they say, I mean, they can say, well, you're making a good point, but it seems to me that point uh, is refuted by thus and such. Are they...?
1: Yes, Justice Clear. They do participate in the discussion, but that's all they can do. Yeah, well,
5: my... You know, judges, when, when they are recused from a case, consider themselves recused not just from voting in the decision, but from participating in the discussion, because that is, that is part of the action of anybody, the discussion which leads to the decision. And when you're out of a case, you're out of it for the discussion, not only for the vote. Why, why isn't a similar rule an appropriate one for deliberations of an executive agency? If you want to be out, you ought to be out. You shouldn't influence the decision, not, not just not vote on it, you shouldn't influence it.
1: The rules regarding recusal are different rules, and the ex-officio members may very well end up accusing themselves from specific cases. But here you're not dealing with a question of interest in the case that would require recusal. Rather, what you're dealing with is a question of, is it some leverage or some coercion of power that, uh, that they're exercising on the Commission?
3: But if you're right, uh, your opponents suggest that Congress could put ex-officio members on this Court to sit in our conference. And under your theory, that's okay, because all they can do is discuss it with us. That's all right.
1: Uh, no, Justice O'Connor, we think that that um, proposition is really based on an untenable proposition by the respondents, which is that what is good for an independent agency created by Congress and placed in the executive branch by necessity is good for this Court or the President.
3: Well, do you think it would be a violation of separation of powers if Congress were to send some ex-officio members to this Court's Yes. Conference?
1: Yes, I think it would interfere. It would also directly interfere with this court's Article Three powers. Uh, it is the same analysis, the same function. Why? Why?
2: Because why does it interfere with us any more than 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 uh, the ex officios are interfering with the FEC?
1: Because the the same rights that, uh, that, that attach to either the President or this Court do not necessarily attach to independent agencies. I think a, a
2: good... So it's the, it's, the, it's, the, it's the textual difference? It's the independent, textually established constitutional status of this Court? It, yes, in, in large on part. That, then on that reasoning, uh, there, there could be ex officio listeners in, in the Court of Appeals? No, I would say all would apply no, to... No, they don't have any textual basis in the Constitution, uh, apart from the, the provision for creation of lower federal courts.
1: But you would still have to look at whether or not it interfered with the Court's Article Three powers. In
2: what sense would it interfere any more than this interferes with the, with the FEC?
1: In, in the sense that the, the Constitution gives Article Three courts um, strong protection against partisan or political influence. Um, you have lifetime tenure uh, without diminution pay. Um, those, those are not the same seems
2: to me to argue just the other way. Uh, we, we can tell them to go to the devil, but the the people on the FEC do not have lifetime tenure
1: but, but still the, it is not the, the the court derives its power directly from Article Three. We are a creature of Congress, we are a, a, an agency that was created by Congress for a specific purpose. The analysis that would say well you, you keep telling
2: me about textual bases or non textual bases. You use the word interfere, which I think has a factual connotation. What is the interference in our case that does not exist, or would exist in our case, that does not exist in the FEC case?
1: Uh, clearly, the one mentioned before about the potential of a chill, um, because this Court's deliberations are not subject to the Freedom of Information Act, are not subject to the statute. Well, what if of the
2: Act? statute creating the, the, uh, the, the listener simply uh, subjects the listener to exactly the same confidentiality requirements that the Court imposes upon itself? So there's no... And we assume people will follow the law in good faith. There's no practical risk of, of our reading of the deliberations in the paper next week. Uh, why wouldn't that satisfy your, your your problem?
1: Because I think it would still be considered a direct interference with the court's Article Three powers. Uh, it is not – again, the, the uh, freedom of well, – I, I think
2: I, I agree with you, but I don't see how you're drawing the line between the two
1: cases. Well, I – if you – if you cannot draw the line, then I think there would also be a problem with the application of the Freedom of Information Act and the Sunshine Act to independent agencies. Because clearly the courts have gone out of their way to not apply, for example, the Federal Advisory Committee Act to the office of the President, saying that to do so would, be, would, would raise serious constitutional doubts about the Federal Advisory Committee Act. But when you get to applying it to independent agencies, there is little doubt that the act can be can be applied because oh, now wait
5: now, now you 've confused me you 've been talking up to now about independent agencies. I thought you were using that to mean the 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 fourth branch of government, the headless fourth branch, just those agencies that are not subject to the president. Is that what you mean?
1: Yes, um,
5: but now your example about the Advisory Committee Act—that applies to uh, to all agencies, not just independent agencies.
1: Correct, but it would not apply to the Office of the President. All I'm suggesting there but is that,
5: that that's a quite different line—the line between the, the Office of the President and the rest of the government—is that the line you're relying on?
1: I'm uh, wh- I'm relying on several lines. Yes, that is one clear line. The difference between the Office of the President and also with this court Article Article I three think twice. I agree.
5: We we wouldn't have to worry about putting. Uh, 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 putting listeners into the office of the president, but, but, uh, what about their putting listeners into all other agencies, including the defense department, uh, interior, whatever?
1: Each one would have to be analyzed on a functional approach, and I would start with the proposition that there is a distinction with the Federal Election Commission um, that may not exist with other agencies, and that is that the Federal Election Commission deals in an area of law that directly interrelates with how Congress acts.
6: So we
5: really wouldn't know until they try them one-by-one, agency-by-agency, right?
1: Well, um, I think each one. And
5: then when they get here, you you urge that we not apply the rule in, in the first case anyway.
1: I'm only urging it with regard to the Federal Election Commission. Um, as, you, as you approach this case, I think you would have to look at it with a functional analysis. Um, May I ask
6: you two, two very brief questions? Do these, the commissioners, get paid?
1: The ex-officio members? Yes. Yes.
6: For their duties, in addition to their salaries, with Congress?
1: No, my understanding is that they get paid by Congress, and that is what, uh, well, the desi- well, what we have is designated. Are they
6: paid for their services on the
1: commission? Not that I'm aware of separately from their other services.
6: And what are the responsibilities, if any?
1: Um, the responsibilities uh, do not appear in the statute, but pursuant to legislative history, the responsibilities was to, were to act as an advisory and liaison function for the Commission. Um, I would also note that even today, the uh, Clerk of the House and the Secretary of the Senate have received all reports for uh, candidates for those uh, for those bodies, and then have to submit those reports to the FEC. So there's a clear overlap between the authority of the FEC, that, and while the FEC has to independently exercise that authority, Congress uh, believed that it, the FEC would be served by the advice of the uh, of the ex officio members, uh, so I think that is um, some partial response to justice Scalia. I think that is a distinction that may very well exist. I think while the court did not specifically reach the question of um, the uh, Attorney General as ex officio member on the sentencing commission I think the same type of analysis would apply there uh there is there is no power direct power and the attorney general brings a certain amount of expertise to the sentencing commission so I think that you may very well have the same type of analysis in that situation if I may briefly turn to the
5: uh the qu- leave me defenseless when you talk about the sentencing commission <laughs>
7: been asked down there a couple of times, forgetting the law for a second, just thinking totally practically. I can imagine how having a congressman sitting up at the bench here might cause a little problem. I mean, you'd be a little nervous about it. And in the conference, it would be tougher to carry out our job. I can understand that. Thinking in those practical terms, uh, what happens when the FEC makes the prosecutorial decision we will prosecute X, or we won't. Is the congressional representative sitting in the room? Is there Are there other members of the public in the room? Is the congressional representative formally or informally? I mean, what happens? Is he interfering in some way, as a practical matter, with the ability of the regular members to make up their own minds independently about whom to prosecute? Is he interfering in a way that's different from what the ordinary citizen might interfere? Does he only appear at public meetings? Are there private meetings where he appears but the others don't? That, that's what I'm trying to get a sense of.
1: The ex officio members are um, able to appear to uh, participate in the executive sessions where administrative investigations are discussed, and members of the public are not allowed to appear in those sessions. However, as a practical matter, what, um, their influence is really limited to the ability to give advice. The statute puts no burden on the agency to follow that advice, to explain why it's not following that advice. It doesn't require the agency to delay a decision if, it disag- if the, ex- if the commissioners, voting commissioners disagree with the ex-officio uh, members that uh, unlike some other statutes um, that the lower courts have upheld, there is there is no leverage that the ex-officios have, other than the leverage that exists with this agency and every agency, which is the leverage of oversight.
4: Is it correct to say they're part of the decisional process?
1: Uh, they are part of the deliberative process. I would not say they're part of the decisional process in the sense that when the time comes to make that decision, what is, very, what is, a, is a practical matter very clear to everybody is that they have no vote because when the time when the motion is called and they cannot make the motion when the motion is called they are silent at that point they cannot vote and i would say whatever weight is carried by the ex officio members having uh the right to uh the right to speak is overridden by the fact that they have absolutely no vote and also the fact that we are subject as the court of appeals below noted to normal oversight and um, the which can include um, in hearings can include private meetings with commissioners and all of that uh is is much more, uh, has much more weight on an agency, in every agency, than just the sitting of the ex-officio members.
2: Is there any rule of the Commissioner, any rule generally, that would prohibit one of these members from speaking to one of the voting members on the way down the hall before the meeting starts? No. Um, so there wouldn't be anything that would prevent such a member from saying, you know, 37 senators are going to be furious if you go after so-and-so on the, on the way into the meeting?
1: No, but, I, but that, that um, doesn't really, uh, is not really necessarily a function of them sitting at the table. Uh, well, but it's also a
2: function that the general public doesn't get to, uh, uh, to perform either. They don't walk down the hall from their offices to the meeting rooms with the commissioners. So that there are opportunities, even, even within the technical rules, there are opportunities to, to influence uh, which members of the general public wouldn't have.
1: Yes, there is that opportunity, but again, uh, I think that opportunity pales in comparison to the opportunity when the tapes are made public for Congress in oversight functions to see um, what the agency has done. Uh, As a practical matter, all they can do is is say um, what they think, and and that's where it stops. Um, What I'd like to just briefly say is that in terms of the the remedy involved in this case, make two very quick points. One is that what we're asking for is the application of Buckley versus Vallejo and to find that the agency was in fact, uh, or the actions of the agency were in fact de facto facto valid. And second, um, that we wanted to point out that contrary to the NRA's position, um, there is a remedy in this case.
0: Thank you, Mr. Noble. Uh, Mr. Bender, we'll hear now from you. Perhaps you might touch briefly on the uh, de facto matter, which I believe you argue in your brief. Yes. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please
8: the Court. Uh, first of all, with regard to the question of the Commission's independent litigating authority, we take the position, as you know, from the brief we filed in response to the Court's invitation, that the Commission does not have independent litigating authority. The right procedure, I think, would be uh, for the clerk to reject a brief or a petition uh, filed by an agency without such authority and asked the Solicitor General whether the Solicitor General, in fact, authorizes the uh, the petition. In this case, uh, we did, in response to the Court's question, uh, authorize the petition. I think that authorization is
3: I guess that we have accepted petitions from the FEC in the past that weren't authorized. Yeah,
8: and I think that's a be
3: kind of a practice of it, so it's quite understandable that the Clerk accepted this one, I suppose.
8: Right, and I think it's also understandable that uh, The FEC did not ask us for authority before filing its petition. They notified us, I believe, the day before they filed as a matter of courtesy. how how
3: would the subsequent consent or authorization relate back? I mean, if the thing isn't properly filed, isn't that the end of the matter?
8: No, I don't think so. It's similar to the practice that's filed throughout the appellate courts in the United States with regard to notices of appeal. Uh, agencies of the United States often file protective notices of appeal without first getting the Solicitor General's authorization because time does not permit that. Uh, and after the notice of appeal is filed, the solicitor general often authorizes the appeal. And but now, is that
0: ahead. the same sort of statutory situation that you have in petitions to this court? I think it is.
8: Uh, the solicitor general has the same authority to authorize appeals by the United States as it does to uh, to authorize participation in this court.
0: So, a U.S. attorney filing a notice of appeal. Uh, from the District Court to the Court of Appeals, uh, you say that Notice of Appeal would be, not be any good, so far as the Court was concerned, unless the SG approved it? I think uh, the appeal would not be any good, unless the Solicitor General approved, authorized
8: the going forward with the appeal. But I think the, the approval does not have to be given before the time for the Notice of Appeal to be filed, because yes. of the time pressure. In the Courts of Appeals, you're, you're saying that they, they are invalid? Uh, no, no, I'm, I'm saying that they are valid uh, even though the authorization comes after the filing of the notice of appeal. They are valid because
5: the U.S. attorneys have authorization to proceed immediately without the prior consent of the, of the Solicitor General. So well, they have authorization. You're saying the practice of the Justice Department is to give them authorization to file appeals. The,
8: right, it's an act. Now, of have you process. given
5: the FEC authorization to uh, file petitions for certiorari?
8: I think no. Uh no, but then, I think then it's in, not a parallel situation. In light I, I agree it's not an entirely parallel situation but in light of what Justice O'Connor mentioned that is the general understanding that they were reasonable in having that they could file this petition without our authorization. The petition should not be deemed to be out of time because they did that and we only authorized it after. Is it the case the that when filed? a person reasonably
5: believes he's an agent, he is an agent.
8: I think it's – I wouldn't analyze it as a technical question of the law of agency. I would analyze it as a question of whether the jurisdictional limits on the filing of the petition were met in this case. And I think that since an agency of the United States did file a petition and signify their intention to go forward with the case, and since we relatively promptly authorized that petition after the Court noticed the problem – Uh, it should be deemed to relate back. And and you shouldn't apply technical concepts of the law of agency to a question. There's no unfairness here to the respondents. Uh,
0: They had noticed that the the petition was being filed You can say that about any agency coming here without the approval. There was no unfairness because the respondent knew that the agency was filing a petition for certiorari, but that doesn't get you over the hurdle. I think, uh, Chief Justice Rehnquist, in a case where it was clear
8: that the agency did not have have the authority Uh, a a case might be made that the petition should be deemed out of time. But I think it's important to take into account here the reality that this Court had in the past accepted those petitions.
4: I I, I thought it was clear here, according to your brief, that the agency does not have that authority.
8: It it is clear to us that they do not, but the agency might very reasonably have thought that they did because in the past they have filed petitions without authorization of the Solicitor General, and the Court has gone ahead and granted the petitions and heard the cases on the merits. So
4: is there an agency? theory that if you reasonably think you have authority you're more likely to have it than if you don't Is that the i
8: don't think i don't think you should uh, analyze this as a matter of agency theory I think you should analyze it as the correct interpretation of the court's uh, uh, jurisdictional limits on the time of filing a petition, and I think if it is unclear whether the agency has the authority, and the agency reasonably believes it has the authority, and the solicitor general's authorization is given relatively promptly afterwards, that there's nothing uh, that prevents you from having that authorization relate back.
3: And you you agree? You disagree with? FEC on the merits and say that this is a violation of Separation of powers. Yes. For, what, do these members have to be appointed by the President? Are they officers of the United States?
8: I think all members of the Commission would have to be appointed by the President. I think so they are you think they are they're
3: covered officers. by the appointments?
8: Yes. I think, ends, yeah, I think the appointments clause is a simple way to decide this case on the merits. And for the reason the Court has given in its questions, uh, we think that the fact that they don't have the vote is not determinative. They can participate in discussions. They can put items on the agenda. Uh, they can make motions. As far as we know, they can supervise the staff. They can participate in private discussions between petitioners. They are colleagues uh, of, the other, uh, of the other commissioners. I would like to spend the rest of my time on the question of remedy, uh, which uh, the FEC did not have a, a chance to explore at length in its argument. Our view is similar to theirs. We agree with the FEC with regard to the remedy that the Court should follow Uh, the same practice that followed in Buckley and Vallejo. In Buckley and Vallejo, the Court went out of its way, even though it held that the structure of the Commission was unconstitutional, uh, to delay its mandate for 30 days in order not to interrupt enforcement of the provisions, the substantive provisions,
0: that the Court sustains. Of course, uh, in Buckley, <clears throat> the thing was just a declaratory judgment, so the mandate was really meaningless anyway.
8: Right, and this, uh, this challenge should also have been a declaratory judgment. And if it had been a declaratory judgment, then I think Buckley would be directly on point, and you would follow that procedure. I don't
5: think you ought to change Why should this have been a declaratory judgment? I, I thought that uh, I thought. That that this uh, respondent was prosecuted for a violation.
8: Right, but the, the structural defect that the respondent points to was never alleged by the respondent to be prejudicial at all to the respondent. Uh, and, uh, in fact, the respondent did not make the claim as he could have uh, before the Federal Election Commission when they, they were considering the bringing of the enforcement action against him. And so a, ch- a, ch- a, ch- a structural challenge like this, especially in light of Buckley, which says that enforcement can go forward even though the structure is unconstitutional, I think Buckley holds that that kind of challenge should be made not in an enforcement proceeding, but in a declaratory judgment well, proceeding. Well,
5: Buckley holds that if it's made in a declaratory judgment proceeding, you You don't issue an immediate, uh, but I don't know that Buckley holds that it it should be brought and must be brought into the declaratory judgment.
8: No, but although Buckley holds that if made in the declaratory judgment proceeding, uh, it it operates only prospectively, Buckley further holds that Pending enforcement proceedings, indeed enforcement proceedings that weren't even pending at the time, but that might be initiated within 30 days after the decision in Buckley, should not be interfered with. That's a holding of Buckley also. And I think if you read that in connection with this case, the conclusion is inevitable that you cannot raise this as a defense in a pending enforcement proceeding. Now, one technical difficulty with that I should point out is that there is a declaratory judgment proceeding in the FEC statute, Section 437H, uh, and it is – the procedures are very similar to the procedures that happen in this case, but there is a technical difference. Uh, under the declaratory judgment procedure in the statute, uh, the district court is not to decide the constitutional question. It is to refer it immediately to the Court of Appeals and Bank. That didn't happen here.
0: In Why this, do you refer to it as a technical difference?
8: It's a difference, in the, it's a difference in the procedures that take place. I don't think it affects the ability of this Court to consider the issues. In this case, it's true that the Court of Appeals did not consider the question in bank, but the Court of Appeals did consider the questions extensively. The questions are being argued to you here. I think that it well, would Are you saying that this is not a proper defense to an enforcement act? Yes. Right. I think Buckley holds that, that this is not a proper defense to an enforcement action, because Buckley holds that. So if there's a
4: constitutionally defective structure, constitutionally defective entity that brings an enforcement action against you, uh, that, uh, un- that constitutional defect is not a defense?
8: Right. I think that's the holding of Buckley uh, and also the holding of uh, Northern Pipeline uh, with regard to uh, similar type structural defects in the bankruptcy courts. It was
0: quite a weird result that uh, you can be proceeded against by an agency that is totally improperly constituted but you can't raise that as a defense to the proceeding?
8: I think that's what Buckley holds and I don't think it's that weird because I I think that should not apply in a case where there is demonstrated prejudice from the structural defect but I think the the basis for Buckley's holding that and I think it is sensible is that when there isn't any prejudice from it uh, it makes sense not to disrupt, cancel, invalidate hundreds of pending proceedings, throwing the whole scheme of the federal statute into disruption.
0: Well, I I can see how you could say that there's some sort of de facto theory, that these six people who are uh, conceitedly present and functioning and properly so uh, would have done exactly the same thing. But it, it seems to me, when you say the, the, the IU, you can't even make the argument in an enforcement proceeding, that, that that's rather extreme. I think you can make it if you can show prejudice. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Thank you, Mr. Bender. Uh, Mr. Cooper, we'll hear now from you.
9: Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, I should like to speak uh, only for a moment on the jurisdictional question that, uh, that the Court has, has discussed. Uh, Our position in this case is J.O.T. And, uh, Mr. Justice uh, Scalia, I think uh, your point regarding uh, this uh, issue going away if the uh, court rules on the cert petition is is not the case, because in this case the court ruled on the cert petition and granted it, and obviously the issue is still here. The issue is a jurisdictional one. Uh, The Solicitor General says that... uh, he can retroactively approve a cert petition filed by the Federal Election Commission. It says that is like a protective notice of appeal. Uh, I think, uh, Justice Scalia, your points uh, were uh, right on target in that regard. My own experience is that there's never been a protective notice of appeal filed without the Solicitor General's approval. Uh, the point, uh, Your Honor, again, is this case is jurisdictionally out of time.
7: Uh, Was it... Uh, it was filed within 90 days uh, by the FEC, and then there's. A, 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 I gather a justice for good cause can extend it for 60 days in addition under the statute, at least as I read that. Is that right? And if that is right, was the approval given by the SG within that 60 days or outside of that 60 days too?
9: Uh, justice Breyer, it was given outside of the 60-day period of time, so there's no understanding of the time limits of this Court, of which I'm aware anyway, that would bring the authorized petition within the time limits of this court. So if it is, uh, if, if the court has jurisdiction, it must be because the Solicitor General is empowered after the fact to authorize the petition. And of course, if in this case, it would mean that the Solicitor General has the power to decide not to authorize it and to pull this case from this court's document by his own unilateral action. We, we don't think that is within the Solicitor General's uh, authority. Uh, moving now uh, to, to the merits of the ex-officio uh, point, uh, Your Honor, I think that uh, counsel for the uh, Commission's concession that ex-officio members on this Court disposes of this case. Uh, the, the,
6: the, uh, there is a difference, Mr. Cooper. I suppose that uh, ex-officio members on this Court would invade our independent authority. But your theory is a little different, I think. Your theory is one of aggrandizement, that Congress is aggrandizing itself or enhancing its own powers by putting its people in another, another branch. So it seems to me the theory is different in the two well,
9: cases. Well, Your Honor, I, I think uh, actually our theory is both that Congress is invading the executive's domain. And it is doing so in a way that aggrandizes its own. So I, I believe we, we have the benefit of all of this court separation. To of powers, inva- as to d- the
6: invasion point, it seems to me rather clear that we would react rather promptly if somebody said somebody's going to sit on our conferences. And it's interesting to me that for some 20 years or so, the FEC doesn't seem to have been bothered at all by the presence of these members. Nobody ever complained about it, did they?
9: Uh, well, Your Honor, they were certainly forewarned uh, by the Ford administration that were the ex officios uh, rema- uh, retained in the statute that that would be an unconstitutional invasion of the executive branch.
5: Well, but they're not really the executive branch is the reason for that, isn't it? I mean, they're, they're the fourth branch.
9: Your Honor, it isn't that- as
5: though if the President objected to it, uh, they, 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 they would stand up and assert the, uh, the chief executive's uh, prerogatives, would they?
9: Excuse me? It is
5: not as though if the President objected to it, the members of the Federal Election Commission would stand up and assert the President's prerogatives on his behalf.
9: Your Your Honor, it is not at all like that. And, in fact, that brings this ex-officio issue into a very sharp focus. This, uh, placing the ex-officio members on an independent agency, so-called, is doubly unconstitutional. It goes beyond just placing them, for example, at the President's cabinet table. Counsel for the... uh, election commission throughout their briefs have made clear that not only is the commission statutorily independent from the control of the president, but the commission is even free from its so-called partisan influence, the president's partisan influence. In the next breath, they quite frankly admit that the congressional agents are on the commission for the purpose of representing the Congress and for the purpose of influencing the commission through their sound advice. So not only has the Congress stripped the President of a purely Article II function, enforcement of law, and placed it in a commission, if the commission is, is right, that is free from the President's control, but it is also installed on that agency two agents of its own for the purpose of influencing the Commission in its Article II functions. This is more unconstitutional, Your Honor, than if they, Congress had simply said,
0: will place an ex officio 10th justice on this court. But the, member, the members, of the, the voting members of the Commissioner are appointed by the President, aren't they? Yes,
9: Your Honor, they are, as a result of Buckley.
0: So, uh, uh, so why, why would one say this is out of the control of the President?
9: Your Honor, the, the President has got... Uh, influence to the extent that he appoints the members. He has no influence beyond that, according to the Commission, and I think according to a fair reading of everything we know about Congress's intentions for this Commission. He has no—our position is that he has no removal authority at all, let alone the at-will removal authority that it is our submission the President must have if this Commission is to exercise the purely executive function of law enforcement. Well, what about the FTC?
0: I mean, there you, you, you have to have removal for cause. Uh, yes, Your Honor. As, as I recall, surely the, the FTC enforces is, is a law enforcement agent.
9: Yes, it is, Your Honor, and, and it is our submission that if Congress is going to place uh, authority in uh, the FTC or the FEC to as the exclusive civil enforcement authority over an entire regulatory statute, then it must ensure that that authority is a subject to the at-will removal control of the President. Well, what about Humphrey's executor,
0: the, the, the case that held that uh, FDR could not remove a member of the, of the FTC uh, at will?
9: Well, Your Honor, the FTC, at the time the Court made that ruling, according to the Court, did not participate at all in the executive authority. Its powers were judicial, its powers were uh, legislative. It did not at that time have civil enforcement authority such as the commission here has. And, in fact, the commission's authority... You don't have
5: to go this... You're you're not fighting the the lost battle of the headless fourth branch. I I gather your point just is that it's worse to have Congress uh, install some of its agents in an independent agency than it is to have Congress install some of its agents in an agency that the president at least has control over. That's, that's the only point you make.
9: I think it is doubly unconstitutional for that reason, yes, Your Honor. I'm making three separation of powers arguments. The presence of, of the ex officios as participating members on the Commission with full rights to advise and, in fact, to influence through their sound advice uh, the Commission is an unconstitutional invasion of the executive's powers because the Commission itself. Exercises exclusively Article II powers. Secondly, we believe that, in fact, the removal, uh, uh, the lack of removal power is a constitutional dimension problem, and not Humphrey's executor, not Morrison versus Olson, none of this court's cases dealing with the headless fourth branch, Justice Scalia, have ever foreclosed the proposition we advance here, which is that when you have principal officers who control a commission charged with purely Article II powers, the civil enforcement of a federal regulatory statute, including the ability to get penalties, as the Commission did in this very case, then you cannot divorce the President from the control of that activity. And none of this this Court's cases have, have held otherwise. Finally, we think that the... Uh,
6: I'm sorry, just Stephen. i was going to ask you if you would take the same view if the, if the two individuals were not actually agents of Congress, but rather the statute, in effect, had designated a public member to sit in on all meetings for information purposes and periodically report to Congress. Would that be the, the subject to the same attack?
9: Your Honor, I think that would be <clears throat> a a tougher case for me to win, uh, for, for largely for the point that you mentioned earlier, the aggrandizement right, that of work. Congress. Uh, but I, I, don't, I, I think that if, uh, if Mr. Bender is correct, and I think he probably is, that the exercise of this authority, this participatory authority as a member of the Commission, is an authority that only an officer of the United States can you
6: see, hold. You'd say that would violate the appointments clause. It would. But supposing you let the President appoint that public member a member to be appointed by the President to perform this function of advising Congress and passing messages from Congress to the Commission?
9: Oh, well, under those circumstances, I think the objectionable features would be would, would be drawn out very thin.
6: So it's the fact that the two individuals are actual officials of Congress that are critical to your case?
9: I don't think it's necessarily... I don't think I would, I would lose your first hypothetical necessarily. I think my case would be weaker. I think that the fact that the Congress has installed two plainly congressional agents
0: it makes my case uh, very strong, Your Honor. Yes. Isn't part of your argument, too, that Congress has selected A and B and said, you're going to do this, rather than uh, speaking for a general class, say a public member, and saying the President may appoint a member of the public, that would be better for the constitutionality, I take it out of your argument, than for the Congress to say... XY is going to be the public member.
9: Yes, Mr. Chief Justice, the President gets to appoint six members from the public, so long as they are three Democrats and three Republicans, a feature which we also think is an invasion of his nomination authority.
6: The piece runs through my, my mind is, is the problem Congress might have, say, with the CIA, some agency that doesn't make its deliberations public, but nevertheless Congress wants to know what goes on. <clears throat> Congress have the power to appoint either a public member or maybe one of its agents to sit in on uh, all policy discussions at the CIA as a method of keeping itself informed about sensitive national security. You know, I
9: think that would, that would fall afoul of the very points we're making here. Uh, it seems to me that the CIA is engaged in a, an executive function, probably a purely executive function. Congress has at its disposal a range of constitutional means to keep itself informed. It can subpoena the CIA and except for executive privilege matters, uh, it can learn whatever it needs to learn about what is going on CIA. What it can't do is invade the CIA with an agent there for the purpose of influencing. Uh,
6: See, it's but, just for the purpose of informing. Isn't it? Of course, they could pre- perform some influence. One of the things that puzzles me about this case is I don't know what these two people really do. It has much significance to it.
9: Well, Your Honor, they do if everything. If nobody
6: could complain for 20 years, that's a puzzling thing. I would think somebody would have been unhappy with them if it was a well, serious problem.
9: Well, uh, Your Honor, I think they do everything that the members, other members, the other six members do, except vote. And,
6: uh, and it's get fact, paid, it, I guess, too.
9: Well, no, they, they, they just don't get paid.
6: For
5: what they well, do. Well, I'm not sure how They get how paid they get pay- for being agents of Congress. Which is what they are in this capacity.
9: What they are in this capacity. Uh, uh, Mr. Cooper, yes, sir, you, are
5: you going to address uh, retroactivity?
9: That's, uh, yes, uh, Your, Your Honor, I would like to do that. I, Mr. I, I,
3: Cooper, before you go into retroactivity, just uh, explain to me, if you would, how it is that the Attorney General can be a member of the Sentencing Commission, and that's not a problem. Uh,
9: Your Honor, the uh, the Sentencing Commission, it, it may well be a problem, Your Honor, I'm not, I'm not sure it isn't a problem, but I think the case against the Attorney General's ex officio membership on the Sentencing Commission is probably weaker, because the, the uh, activities that the Sentencing Commission performs are themselves not activities that the Executive Branch can't perform. They are executive, quasi-judicial, quasi-legislative, the kind of activities that the Justice Department performs. So the fact that the Attorney General is a part of that uh, ex-officio is not necessarily uh, the uh, investing in the Attorney General powers that the Constitution doesn't allow him to have. These ex-officio congressional agents have powers of an executive nature, the enforcement of a regulatory statute, the participation in the decision-making for that enforcement. That is a power they cannot have. Now, if Mr. Bender is right, however, and that is also a power that requires an officer appointed under the Appointments Clause, then the Attorney General is clearly unconstitutional insofar as the Sentencing Commission is concerned.
4: On the retroactivity point, we have held that if there are certain deficiencies in the grand jury structure, if the case proceeds and there's a conviction, uh, the grand jury deficiency is essentially harmless error in some context. Why isn't that true here? Wasn't there an enforcement proceeding that went ahead in the district court? There was an adjudication of liability. Why doesn't that cure any defect that occurred in the investigative stage of of the case?
9: As opposed to the... Uh, actions that took place from the filing of the complaint and on? Yes. Well, uh, Your Honor, I think the case uh, uh, against the presence of the ex-officios with respect to investigation is weaker uh, in the sense that this court in Buckley recognized that Congress itself can perform investigatory powers uh, and uh, that uh, the Federal Election Commission, even with Members, voting members appointed by the Speaker of the House, for example, can have those powers.
4: Was, was the case the, prosecuted in the district court by attorneys for the commission, or by the Justice Department?
9: By attorneys for the commission.
4: Uh, so that you say that there. So would you say that there's an ongoing violation of a structural nature because those attorneys are under the supervision of the commission, which has these uh, ex officio members on it? Is that your theory?
9: Oh yes, yes, Your Honor. Uh, 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 I think that however murky it may be regarding the ex-officio, the participation of the ex-officios in investigatory activities, uh, it's not murky at all that that a complaint filed for the purpose by a government agency for the purpose of uh, collecting a civil penalty for violation of a federal regulatory statute is an executive action. And so that is what this commission was disqualified by the Constitution from doing because of the
0: president. Disqualified. I mean, you've got six people, and they were the only six people who could vote, and they're clearly all right.
9: They are, Your Honor. Uh, but this court's decisions have always recognized that the that when in, in raising a defense to a regulatory action of this kind. The defendant doesn't have to show that a different decision would have been made. That's an impossible burden uh, on on a, uh, a defendant raising a constitutional challenge to the structure to the composition of the enforcement authority, and that would be an impossible burden to to place uh, on
0: uh, well, what, on the What respondent. case you be, are you relying on for that proposition?
9: Well, Buckley, for example. Uh, I think Morrison against Olson. If 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 uh, and, th- and this really gets into this retroactivity point.
2: May, may I discord- ask you another question before you get to retroactivity? Why isn't the proper way to characterize the case something like this? There's an automatic severance provision, uh, in effect, in, 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 this, in, the, in the statute in, in, for this agency. Uh, therefore, the, the clear unconstitutionality uh, is the activity, the presence uh, of the ex officio members. Uh, the way to cure that unconstitutionality is in fact to declare it uh, and uh, and and if there were need to enjoin any further participation by them. The only remaining question uh, is whether those who were properly constituted, the six voting members, uh, were influenced either in the uh, the instigation of the of the prosecution or its continuance. Uh, by, the, by the two who's, who, who had a potential for improper influence. Therefore, the question is, find out whether, uh, in fact, that happened. And if it didn't happen, or perhaps in the alternative, if the six now wish to proceed, period, that is enough remedy for you. The constitutionality is cured, the remedy is prospective, uh, and that's the end of the case.
9: Your Honor, it wouldn't because, at least it is our submission, that the commission was constituted such that it was disqualified from enforcing this statute. It was disqualified from bringing this. You would have a stronger
2: argument if you didn't have a severance provision, wouldn't you?
9: Uh, Your Honor, I don't think so. I think that the severance provision allows for the correction of this statute and it to go forward uh, without further uh, uh, involvement of the Congress. But it does seem to me that those acts that it has taken, which were invalid, which were void can
2: 't just be somehow deemed valid and, that, and that's that 's a way of characterizing the case, but yes. it 's clear from the severance provision that the acts of the six are not per se facially unconstitutional merely from the because of the presence of the two Your Honor... that 's one distinction from a a, a severance not a a statutory severance case from a non statutory severance case isn 't it
9: their acts were not I- invalid but but the acts of the commission itself uh, were invalid it, because of the presence. And, 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 does and it have
5: anything to do with whether their acts are invalid? I thought it simply had to do with whether the statute continues to subsist as an operational statute.
9: That's what sever, severance point, I think, has to do with, Your Honor. Well, you can but cut I, out a
5: piece of the statute and let the rest continue to operate, as opposed to saying the whole statute's null and void.
9: Well, that's true, but you can't... not speak
5: to operational operations.
9: Right, Your Honor, and, and my point on... The operation, uh, Justice Souter, is that if, if this if these ex officios had had voting power, but only two out of eight, they couldn't have coerced or compelled the Commission, and it may well have been that they voted against this action. But in my opinion, that would clearly make it the Commission itself. Well, it would make poised. it because
2: your argument would still be an influence argument, just as it is here.
9: Uh, your Honor, my, my argument you can't is... A compel facial challenge.
2: with two, two out of six does not compel. Uh, uh, non-voting two out of six does not compel. But your argument would be essentially the same, wouldn't it? My
9: argument is not an as-applied argument. It is a facial challenge based upon the membership of the ex-officios, not upon whether or not they actually influence this case in a way against uh, my clients. If, if the statute had said all of the Federal Election Commission uh, uh, members will be white, then that would be an invalid commission, and the acts taken against me, even if they would have been taken by a perfectly uh, constitutional commission, would be void, in my opinion, and I would
0: have a, a valid defense. Well, if in Mar- you think of a facial attack as being associated with the First Amendment. Other than that, to st- talk about something being void or invalid and something like that, uh, it's, it's not always that clear that it's totally across the board. Well, Your Honor, if, l- let's, let's take the Morrison case, for example. If this Court had
9: thrown out the independent counsel instead of upholding it, then surely it would follow, I would submit, that the criminal prosecution of the defendants in that case would have had to be dismissed. It couldn't have just been continued by that void independent counsel, or even by an independent counsel at that point somehow constitutionally repaired to go forward. Uh, The same would be true in the Buckley case. Mr. Bender suggested that Buckley held that we can't raise a separation of powers defense in response to uh, an enforcement action against us. Well, Buckley wasn't; uh, it did not arise in the context of a defense to an enforcement action. It was, as the Chief Justice pointed out, a declaratory judgment seeking only one thing: prospective relief. That's what that's what they got. But if, if the Buckley case had indeed arisen in the same context that this one is, with Mr. Buckley and others uh, suffering under not only what we submit as unconstitutional prosecution of civil enforcement action, but the actual imposition of civil penalties against them, then surely this Court's invalidation of the Commission for the constitutional violations in that case would mean that those civil penalties and that prosecution under the Federal Election Campaign Act go away. And, and, and that's what our submission is here, that the court really, uh, if, if, if we are correct on the merits and the commission itself is an unconstitutionally constituted body, and therefore disqualified, we would submit, from uh, enforcing uh, a federal regulatory statute in court – then the Court can't just, I think in the words of the Harper case, uh, disregard current law and allow the Commission to just go forward without interruption as the Commission was saying.
4: If you prevail on the merits, can Congress act quickly and ratify all existing uh, 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 enforcement actions?
9: Your Honor, uh, I don't believe that it can. My time is up. No,
4: No. you can
0: answer the question, Mr. (laughs) Mayor.
9: Your Honor, I don't think Congress has any greater authority to validate or somehow deem valid an unconstitutional civil prosecution than I believe this Court has. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you, Mr. Cooper. The case is submitted.